Hello and welcome to the Village Church Podcast. My name is John and we are glad to have you join us. We work to deliver our most recent preaching content to you as soon as possible, so let's get into God's Word together. If you have a Bible, you can find your way to Exodus chapter 14. If you do not have a Bible, there are some on the table that you can take. If you need one, if you know someone who needs one, please feel free to take one. There are two Bibles on the table back there. One is blue and one is black. They're the same standard, just Bible. Uh, No difference other than the appearance of them. But uh, take one, use it, make use of it, give it to someone. Good to open the Bible with you again in a new year. Good to pray with you. Exodus chapter 14. We have been journeying through Exodus since, I believe, May of last year. Uh, And all throughout our journey through this book, we've had one theme. We are looking at God who delivers, redeems, and dwells with his people. We have seen God bring judgment upon Pharaoh and Egypt, enemies of God and enemies of God's people. Exodus chapter 6, God says, I will deliver you, I will redeem you to his people Israel by an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. We've been seeing these great acts of judgment over the first 12 chapters of Exodus and into the 13th chapter, into 14. They are now delivered from Egypt. They are out in the wilderness. The end of chapter 13 finds them in the wilderness leaving Egypt. I think it's very important. Maybe you should make this note. I've made it mentally, but uh, it's a good one. They're not fleeing Egypt. It's not an escape. They've been rescued. They are leaving Egypt. God has delivered them, and he is now leading them in a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. He is leading them to the land promised to them. I will deliver you and I will bring you to the land promised to your fathers, tracing its roots back to Genesis chapter 17, where God said to Abraham, I will give your offspring this land, leading them to it. He is leading them to trust and depend on him in greater ways. We are not going to cover all of Exodus 14 today. I've actually broken it up, I think, into at least three weeks. But I am going to read the whole chapter. So if you would follow along, Exodus chapter 14. Then the Lord said to Moses, Tell the people of Israel to turn back and encamp in front of Pi-Hahiroth, between Migdal and the sea, in front of Baal-Zephon. You shall encamp facing it by the sea. For Pharaoh will say of the people of Israel, they are wandering in the land. The wilderness has shut them in. And I will harden Pharaoh's heart and he will pursue them. And I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his host. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. And they did so. Verse 5. When the king of Egypt was told that the people had fled, the mind of Pharaoh and his servants was changed toward the people, and they said, What is this we have done? We have let Israel go from serving us. So he made ready his chariot and took his army with him and took 600 chosen chariots and all the other chariots of Egypt with the officers over all of them. And the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and he pursued the people of Israel while the people of Israel were going out defiantly. The Egyptians pursued them, all Pharaoh's horses and chariots and his horsemen and his army, and overtook them encamped by the sea at Pi-Hahiroth in front of Baal-Zephon. Verse 10, when Pharaoh drew near, the people of Israel lifted up their eyes, and behold, the Egyptians were marching after them, and they feared greatly. And the people of Israel cried out to the Lord. They said to Moses, is it because there are no graves in Egypt that you have taken us away to die in the wilderness? What have you done to us in bringing us out of Egypt? Is not this what we said to you in Egypt? Leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians? For it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. And Moses said to the people, Fear not, 
Stand firm and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians, whom you see today, you shall never see again. The Lord will fight for you, and you have only to be silent. The Lord said to Moses, Why do you cry to me? Tell the people of Israel to go forward. Lift up your staff and stretch out your hand over the sea and divide it, that the people of Israel may go through the sea on dry ground. And I will harden the heart of the Egyptians so that they shall go in after them, and I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his hosts, his chariots and his horsemen. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I have gotten glory over Pharaoh, his chariots and his horsemen. Then the angel of the Lord, who was going before the host of Israel, moved and went behind them, and the pillar of cloud moved before them and stood behind them, coming between the host of Egypt and the host of Israel. And there was the cloud and the darkness, and it lit up the night without one coming near the other all night. When Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, the Lord drove back the sea by a strong east wind. All night it made the sea dry land, and the waters were divided. And the people of Israel went into the midst of the sea on dry ground, the water being a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. The Egyptians pursued and went in after them into the midst of the sea, all Pharaoh's horses, his chariots, his horsemen. And in the morning watch, the Lord, in the pillar of fire and of cloud, looked down on the Egyptian forces and threw the Egyptian forces into a panic, clogging their chariot wheels so that they drove heavily. And the Egyptians said, let us flee from before Israel, for the Lord fights for them against the Egyptians. Then the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand over the sea, that the water may come back upon the Egyptians, upon their chariots and upon their horsemen. So Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the sea returned to its normal course when the morning appeared. And as the Egyptians fled into it, the Lord threw the Egyptians into the midst of the sea. The waters returned and covered the chariots and the horsemen. Of all the host of Pharaoh that had followed them into the sea, not one of them remained. But the people of Israel walked on dry ground through the sea, the waters being a wall to them on their right hand and on their left hand. Thus the Lord saved Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians, and Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. Israel saw the great power that the Lord used against the Egyptians. So the people feared the Lord, and they believed in the Lord and in his servant, Moses. Would you pray with me? Father, we come to you today, having opened your word, having read your word, and now looking to examine it, that we may live a better life for you in this world. Father, that we may learn from your word, apply it to our lives, that which we've learned. Father, and that we may, we may be better Christians, better followers of Jesus, better witnesses, better testifiers of the gospel. Father, I pray that you would speak to hearts and minds that are here. I pray you'd speak to my heart, Father, as my voice is heard. May it be your voice that speaks. Father, speak to me as you speak through me. God, I pray that through the teaching and preaching of your word, I pray that the sinner here today would be humbled to repentance. Father, to salvation. I pray, Father, that holiness would be promoted among your people, that we would follow you in a greater way. And I pray, Father, that Christ the Savior would be exalted. We pray this in his name. Amen. After reading the entire chapter, you now understand why we're not going to talk about the whole chapter today. I have broken it, again, I believe, into three segments. The first one today I've entitled simply, Know Your Enemy. Pretty simple. I was irritated that I couldn't title the sermon from the text. That's what I like to do. But as I read through this and as I considered the whole chapter and everything we've learned prior and everything that we're going to see as we continue, Lord willing, I considered the first nine verses of this chapter, and in prayer and in study, my hope today is to help us gain a greater understanding of our enemy, the devil. I don't know how many pastors in America are talking about the devil today. 
I don't know, even just in general, like not just today, I wonder if anybody is right now, but we kind of don't like to talk about bad things, and Satan's a bad thing because he's our enemy, he's opposed to us. And we like to think about things being good for us, and things are good for the people of God, amen? But we have an enemy, he's very real. Peter says that our enemy prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking to devour so this is not, you know, sometimes we try and figure out who the enemy is. Who, who is the enemy? Uh, I like history. If you study in World War II, there was great debate and concern over who actually is the enemy because the enemy took on many nationalities and many faces and many leaders, and they're trying to navigate who, who is the enemy. My father, a Vietnam veteran in the South Pacific and Asia there, Southeast Asia, trying to understand who is and who is not the enemy. I hope you paid attention to the verses that we heard in our worship time of worship and song, Ephesians chapter 6, 10 through 13. For we wrestle not against flesh and blood. Here's a challenge for everyone here this morning. Look both to your right and to your left and let the person next to you know that they are not your enemy. Do it. This is an exercise for you. You are not my enemy. This may be a real challenge in the room. Many of you may have come in here this morning and may be thinking, oh no, the person to my right or my left is the enemy. There is a person in the room who is my enemy. No, the Bible tells us that our enemy is not flesh and blood. And so when we struggle to understand and to follow Christ and to not fight with people, we must remember that our enemy is trying to devour us. And how? He's trying to devour us as he manifests himself through other people. But your enemy is not the person next to you, not your spouse, not your child, not your neighbor, not your in-laws. The enemy is Satan, the great deceiver. We're going to look at this a little bit more. And it is incumbent upon every follower of the Lord Jesus Christ to know the enemy. You must know your enemy. And God has not left us trying, I'm just trusting you, Lord. I don't want to know anything. I'll just trust you. No, God has given us so much evidence about our enemy to know our enemy. We can understand how Satan operates. I'm going to highlight some points this morning that may be a bit revolutionary for many in the room, but they're true points. We can know our enemy. He's not an unlimited force. He has an expiration date as the foe of God and the people of God. I want us to know and gain a greater understanding of our enemy, the devil, how he operates. There are several things that I do want to point out. I guess mainly two things that I want to point out about this chapter as a whole before we begin looking at these first nine verses. One, did you notice that phrase, get glory over? It happens, look, in verse 4. It happens down in verse 17. And a form of it happens again in verse 18. The Lord said, I will get glory over Pharaoh, down in verse 17, and I will get glory over, verse 18, when I have gotten glory over. Write this down. God will get glory over his enemy. God will be glorified over his enemy, over your enemy, over our enemy, over the enemy of the people of God. God will get glory glory. Second, Israel saw three things. Maybe, maybe more. Maybe you can find more. I saw three distinct things that Israel saw. And as we work through chapter 14 of Exodus, we're going to see what they saw. First, verse 10, the people of Israel lifted up their eyes and they saw the enemy coming. They were not blind, trapped against the sea, facing the desert. They looked up and they saw the enemy coming. We're going to move way down into verse 30. Israel saw three things that are really important that the people of God will see. We will see these things. They saw the enemy coming. One, way down in verse 30. Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. You could shorthand that. Israel saw a defeated enemy. Israel saw a defeated enemy. And if they hadn't had enough convincing through ten plagues in Egypt, if they hadn't had enough convincing there, verse 31, Israel saw the great power that the Lord 
used against the Egyptians. These are themes that I saw as I worked through chapter 14. God will get glory over his enemies, and the people of God will see their enemy, will see the enemy of God defeated, and will see the power of God displayed in the defeat of his enemy. Those aren't even the sermon points for today. You're welcome for the bonus. Chapter 14, verse 1. The Lord told the people to camp here, to turn back. Facing the wilderness with their back to the sea. Hemmed in, if you will. This is simply more detailed, what we saw back in chapter 13, the 17th verse. When Pharaoh let the people go, God did not lead them by the way of the land of the Philistines, which was nearer. He took them a different route. We talked, again, no map, so I'm sorry for that, but we talked about the, the geography, the layout of the Sinai Peninsula and that Egypt into Middle Eastern territory of the world. He led them south and took a slight right so that they were actually moving down and away from the promised land. And then he tells them to camp with their back to the sea facing the wilderness. This is simply more detail of God leading his people in a strange direction that makes no sense. Before we lose track of where they're going, I want everyone to remember, they're going to the land promised to them. But they are going that way by way of another stop. It's like, I got another stop to make first. Remember where God is leading them? Where are they going right now? Where are they going at this moment? Yes, they are ultimately going to the land of promise, but first, they're going to the mountain of God to worship and serve God. More than 10 times across the book of Exodus so far in these 14 chapters, more than 10 times across the start of Exodus, we see the theme of let us go three days' journey into the wilderness that we may serve the Lord. That is where they are going right now. Probably want to write this down. God has delivered them, and now they're going to worship him. Upon their deliverance, God is leading them to worship. I wonder how often we're delivered from something, brought through something, brought out of something. I wonder how many times we see the power of God, the enemy defeated. I wonder how many times we see this happen in our lives, and worship is not the first stop. Glad I got through that. We've already moved God from his position of rescue. Glad I got through that. You got through nothing. They got through nothing. Israel got through nothing. God brought them out. And after he brings them out, he's taking them to a place of worship. The Lord said to Moses in Exodus chapter 3, verse 12, he said, this will be a sign for you. When I deliver you, you shall worship me on this mountain. So he is taking them. They have a stop to make. Taking them to a place of worship. God is not leading them in some random way that makes no sense. He's leading them in a way that will perfect them for his purpose. He's leading them in a way to, as we've seen now in chapter 14, where they will see his power in a greater way. Simply more detail of their travel. Verse 3 through 9. Pharaoh will say of the people of Israel, they are wandering in the land. The wilderness has shut them in. And I will harden the heart, I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and he will pursue. And I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his host, and the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. And they did so. And when the king of Egypt was told that the people had fled, the mind of Pharaoh and his servants was changed toward the people. And they said, What is this we have done that we have let Israel go from serving us? Verse 6 So he made ready his chariot, his army with him took 600 chosen chariots and all the other chariots of Egypt with officers over all of them. And the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and he pursued the people of Israel while the people of Israel were going out defiantly. The Egyptians pursued them, all Pharaoh's horses and chariots and his horsemen and his army, and overtook them, encamped at the sea by Pihiroth in front of Baal Zephon. This is where we find the people of Israel now. Throughout their journey, we have considered, especially through the plagues in Egypt, we have considered that in delivering, redeeming, and dwelling with his people, God will bring full and complete judgment upon his enemies. God does not deliver his people and leave the enemies to just, "Eh, I'm done with you, I've got what's mine. God is a just God. 
God will bring judgment upon those who are defiantly opposed to him, upon those who are not known by him, upon those, the New Testament tells us, whose names are not written in the book of life from the foundation of the world. God will bring judgment upon his enemies. He's not going to deliver his people and leave his enemies to fend for themselves. He will bring judgment upon them. We've considered that when God brings judgment, he brings full and complete judgment. God does not bring judgment and then say, oh, I'm sorry, that's enough, I'll step back now. If they are enemies of God, they will receive a full and complete judgment. It will happen. But this does not mean that while there may be a moment of rest, right? Egypt has gone through ten plagues. The firstborn in all the land is dead. Pharaoh's come to realize, what have we done? We've let them go. This does not mean that the enemy is going to sit by in the meantime, simply waiting for full and complete destruction to come upon them. All of a sudden, it starts to become interesting, the route that God leads them down the Arabian Peninsula, the outside of it, toward the right. Look what it says, even says right in verse 2, tell the people of Israel to turn back. That would be like, we would read that and think, back is Egypt. No, not back. It's like, take a slight right. We're going this way, to the mountain of God. Turn back. Okay. And they turn. God is leading them away to show his glory in a greater way, to bring full and complete judgment. And while they're going out, the Bible tells us that Pharaoh has a change of mind. Wait a second, what have we done? Why did we let them go? What have we done? We already know Pharaoh's mind toward the people of Israel. Pharaoh in his mind is God of Egypt and he has held Israel down. I will not let them go. They're mine. I don't know the Lord. I will not let them go. And so he is exercising now. Well, let's go get them. The Lord tells Moses, I will harden his heart. We've examined this so many times over over the course of Exodus 1 through 14. What's happening here? As he has done before, God is allowing Pharaoh to exercise his pride, his arrogance, his sin, Do you understand that the pride and arrogance and sin of man is only constrained in this world by the hand of a sovereign, all-controlling God? Do you understand that the reason we're not all absolutely destroyed is because God resists from bringing judgment now? Do you understand that when judgment happens, when you read Revelation and have no idea what it's being talked about, do you understand what has happened is that God has, in effect, removed his hand from the mess that this is. But he doesn't because God is the one who brings judgment on the mess that it is. Man furthering to serve itself, furthering to worship itself, furthering God out of the picture. And this is what's happening here with Pharaoh as he says, what have we done? He's just buried his oldest son. His firstborn is dead. The Bible tells us Pharaoh's son died. Like, had the ground even hardened yet? When all of a sudden Pharaoh's like, what in the world are we doing? We're bigger, stronger, and badder than them, and we've had them held down as slaves for hundreds of years. Let's go get them. We're going to go get them. But God said, I will harden his heart. I will let him go into the arrogance of himself, into the depths of his own sin against me, and I will get glory over Pharaoh. I think we maybe flew past it a little too quick, but do you remember back in Exodus chapter 9, the words of God to Moses, to Pharaoh? For this purpose I've raised you up, that I might show my power. God will get the glory, and Israel will see it. And where their position reaches Pharaoh, he effectively says, they don't know where they're going. See it in the language? They are wandering in the land. The wilderness has shut them in. They've been our prisoners here for hundreds of years. They don't know what they're doing. They're supposed to go to the promised land of of Israel. They're going south. They don't know what they're doing. They don't know where they're going. I don't know why I've let them go either. Pharaoh and his servants changed their mind toward the people of God. When the king of Egypt was told that the people had fled, the mind of Pharaoh and his servants was changed. Get out of here. All the firstborn in our land are dead. Go. Take our silver, take our gold, take our clothes, and get out. 
all of you now. What have we done? Go and get him. Now he's angry. His mind has changed. He's lost his workforce. He's lost his power. Why? You got to understand the mind of arrogant men. If Pharaoh has no power over this multitude of Israel, what is the power that he has over his own people? And if Pharaoh is not powerful to his own people, some king, we must go. He acts out. I love it. In effect, his mind changes. In effect, muster the troops. What's he do? Let's call together the strategy team. No, the strategy's already cooked up in his mind. Get the men, all of them. Get all the chariots, get all the horsemen. You have no idea how hard I've been refraining from all the king's horses and all the king's men all week long. I've been reading it, I've been studying it, and every single turn, I'm like, all the king's horses and all the king's men. But nobody's going to put Pharaoh back together again. It's not going to happen. He's utterly discombobulated. Muster the troops. And look what it says. 600 chosen chariots and all the other chariots of Egypt. His horsemen, his army. The Bible does not tell us if they took foot soldiers or not, if, whether they had infantry with them, guys with spears and shields and swords. It tells us they mustered 600 chosen chariots. This is like we're sending the commandos and all the other chariots ahead of the main force and those on horseback. It doesn't say. We need to remember something. Pharaoh wants to recapture what he's let go of. And do you remember how Israel left Egypt? This is important. How did they leave? Quickly. In haste. Why is there a pillar of cloud and why is there a pillar of fire? So that nothing would stop them on their way day and night as they got out of Egypt. So if he's wanting to move quickly, it's likely, and I was, I was reading this, I'm like, it doesn't say foot footmen, men on foot. It doesn't use any language like that anywhere. I started reading some commentaries. Everyone agrees. Pharaoh just wants to get there. He wants to get them and he wants to get home. He's got all the chariots, all the horsemen. Verse 9 tells us that he catches up with them encamped by the sea. And I am not advancing the narrative of Exodus 14 beyond that point. Because I think that we need to stare down biblical truth revealed in Pharaoh about the enemy of God, about the enemy of God's people. And I want to look at it from two phrases, one in verse 3 and one in verse 9. The first that I want to look at it is from this phrase, they are wandering and shut in. You can write this down. The enemy schemes. Know your enemy. What is one of the tactics of the devil? He's a schemer. He schemes. The enemy schemes, and the people of God are vulnerable. This is twofold. The enemy is a schemer, and we are vulnerable, weakened by the fall, living in this body of death. How often do we think? I was having a conversation this morning. Lord, if you just take me home to glory, I wouldn't have this fight anymore. Amen? Done with sin forever, but I've got this fight while I'm here, and I'm weakened because of this fight that I'm in. The enemy is a schemer. We're going to wander through scripture. If you miss a reference, if you want it, please get with me after. I'll be happy to share any of the references that I share. I'm going to throw several out. You don't have to turn to them. I'm just going to share some biblical high points of our enemy, the schemer. The first instance that we see Satan operating in God's word as we read from front to back is Genesis chapter 3. And the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field. And he said to the woman, he deceives her. He's crafty, more cunning and crafty, a schemer. He's plotting, do you understand? We just sang the words, no power of hell, no scheme of man. It's not man's scheme because our wrestle is not against flesh and blood. It's the scheme of the enemy. Isaiah chapter 14, verses 12 through 15, reveals the scheming nature of Satan in his attempt to overtake the throne of God. His scheming knows no bounds, do you understand? And this is what should cause us all to understand how important it is to stand strong in faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Because if Satan 
can scheme in the eternal realm of God to overtake the throne of God, what power are you against that? How will you stand against such a power that schemed to overtake the throne of God? Now, he obviously did not have the power to do that. The Bible talks about him being thrown out of heaven. As we connect some of the biblical dots of Satan's fall, we see the depths of his scheming. John and Revelation, a great reference for it, Revelation chapter 12. You can read it later this week. I would encourage you to. Verse 3 and 4 says, A great dragon swept his tail, and a third of the stars of heaven fell down to the earth. Revelation chapter 12, verses 3 and 4. In Revelation 12, verse 9, John links the dragon to the serpent in Genesis 3, when he says, I wrote it down so I wouldn't misquote it, the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent, there's the link from Revelation chapter 12, verse 9, by John back to Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, the serpent deceived me. Great dragon of chapter 12, the serpent, Satan, our enemy. The ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan. There's the link between Satan and the devil and our enemy. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around. He was thrown down and his angels were thrown down with him, John writes. Satan, thrown down out of heaven. His angels thrown down with him. The scheming of Satan was so deep that he was able to scheme and deceive other created angels in an eternal realm that our minds cannot comprehend. And in his judgment, as God hurls him out of heaven to the earth, in his judgment, those angels fall with him. Jesus, Matthew chapter 25, talks about the flame and pit of hell being reserved for Satan, the devil, and his angels. I'm going to talk more about that in just a second. This is the depths of the scheming of Satan, that it wasn't just one that was thrown down and fell out of heaven. It was a host. One pastor, one time, as I was listening to a sermon through Revelation, talks about they link the stars of heaven, the third of the stars swept by the tail of the great dragon that were thrown down from heaven to earth, and then Satan being thrown down and his angels with him. One pastor talking about there being a third of the angels in heaven swept up and thrown down with Satan. Do you know how many angels are in heaven? The Bible says it's an innumerable number. So a third of innumerable was thrown down with Satan. More in a moment. These are common passages used to establish Satan as the enemy of God's people. As we look at them, we see the depths of his scheming. Currently in my daily Bible reading, those who may be reading through the Bible in a year with me, you're all invited. Please do. It's printed in the news. It's in the email. You can find it on a your phone and do it there. Currently, it's taking us through the book of Ezra. And this past week, we read Ezra chapter 4 and chapter 5. And you know what happened in Ezra chapter 4 and chapter 5? There were people who were rebuilding the temple of God, released by King Cyrus to go back and build the temple. And they go back and they're doing the work, and all of a sudden, the Bible says that there came up opposition to the work. Opposition to the work that God had moved a pagan king to move the people of God to go and do these people come and say, what are you doing? What are you doing? We see in Ezra 4 and 5, we see the enemy scheming through man. Happens again in Nehemiah. If you ever read the story of Nehemiah, the book of Nehemiah, they're rebuilding the wall around Jerusalem. Ezra rebuild the temple. Nehemiah rebuild the wall. And what do you have when there's a temple and a wall? All of a sudden you have the city of God formed again for the people of God. In Nehemiah, they're rebuilding the wall, and the opposition comes against them. You're rebelling from the king. You're going to set yourself up as king. What are you doing? And what is it? It's not man. It's not the opposers of the Israelites in Jerusalem. It's the enemy, Satan, scheming through man to stop and distract the people of God from doing what God has told them to do. Again, keeping before us, Satan is a schemer, and God's people are vulnerable to the schemes of the enemy. When Nehemiah, the story of Nehemiah, they literally say, there's not enough of us and we're spread real thin. If the enemy attacks, we're in big trouble. Vulnerable because the walls are broken down. Paul writes to Timothy, 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 26, 
it's possible for the Lord's servant to be ensnared by the devil to serve the devil's purpose. Everyone here ought to tremble at that. That's me, that's you, that's any Christian in any church being influenced and swayed by the devil to serve the devil's purposes because he's a schemer. He's not so overt, do you understand? So many of us, aren't we all waiting for the, did God say you would die? If he came at me like he came at Eve, I'd punch that serpent right in the head. No, you wouldn't, and he comes at you the same way. He's a schemer. It's subtle. In 2 Timothy chapter 2, Paul writes... The servant of the Lord must not be quarrelsome. Pray may be granted repentance after having been ensnared by the devil. To the Ephesians in chapter 6, verse 11 of the book of the Ephesians, Paul says to put on the armor of God in order to stand against the schemes of the devil. What do you got the armor of God for? I'm going to cut that serpent's head right off. No, you're going to stand girded, properly prepared for warfare against a schemer. You don't know that someone who's scheming is scheming against you. That's why it becomes so drastic. Someone plots and plans and schemes against you. Satan, it says the ancient serpent has been scheming for all of his existence. John recorded Jesus as saying in John chapter 8, verse 44, not only is the enemy a schemer, Jesus reveals his character, the character of the devil. He says he is a liar. He is the father of lies. Jesus says to the Jewish people around him, when you lie, you speak like your father, the devil. Lying comes from Satan. When we lie, ouch, we are speaking Satan's language. And everybody in the house of God this morning said, that shouldn't be. We don't want Satan's words on our mouth. In Christ alone, my hope is found. As long as nobody knows about the language of Satan I use to my enemy over there, do you understand the scheme of the devil? Scheming. The enemy schemes against a vulnerable people weakened by the fall. And the enemy, verse 9, he pursued them, I made this note, in force. Pharaoh didn't just mount up and go after Moses. This wasn't, someone get my fastest chariot so I can go get Moses. King of Egypt, I'll wrap this up all on my own. Mano y mano, I'll go take Moses down and bring them all back home. What's he say? Get all the troops. Get all the chariots, those 600 elite ones, and every other one you can find. Get all the horsemen. Get all of them. We're going. He pursued them in force. Here's an uncomfortable note for you this morning. The enemy is strong, and we are weak. We are weak because of the fall. The enemy is strong. We just considered angels falling with him. With many angels falling with him, the enemy force led by Satan is not only innumerable, it's been given power. There is a power of darkness. We're going to examine this in just a moment. Ephesians tells us about it. The enemy force that Satan is the leader of is strong. But write this down. It's limited. The enemy force is limited. Satan does not operate with all authority. Paul, again to the Ephesians, chapter 6, verse 12, says that our enemy is not flesh and blood. We've already understood that here this morning. Boy, I'm praying that for you in the room this morning. The enemy is not seated with you, didn't come with you, doesn't live in your home, isn't at work tomorrow morning, isn't down the road from you when you get home later today, isn't yourself. Ooh, that'll preach, pastor. The enemy is not yourself. The enemy is the devil scheming through man. Paul says in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 12, our enemy is not flesh and blood, but rather, listen, and be warned. 
For the believer in Christ, there is, this is strange. Wow, this should really intimidate us, but it doesn't because of Christ. Our enemy is, Paul says, the rulers, authorities, cosmic powers over the present darkness, spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Again, slower so you can tremble at our enemy force. We're weak by the fall. We're susceptible to the scheming of the devil. We're vulnerable because of the fall. We're weakened by the fall. And our enemy is rulers, authorities, cosmic powers over the present darkness. And this is the worst one in my opinion. Spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Satan leads an army. And he's leading that army ultimately against God. And by a product of that, against the people of God. Read in the book of Revelation, the end of time when God begins eternity. It says the enemy forces, oh, is it chapter 17 maybe? The enemy forces, it says, marched up over the broad plain of the earth. You know what it says next? And encompassed the people of God. Let's think about that for a moment. The Bible tells us that there will be a number in heaven such as no one can count. No one knows the number. John saw a number that he couldn't even begin to put a number to. He just uses words to describe it beyond. It was huge. And then he says that the enemy army that came to make war against the saints of God, encompassed them. Satan leads an army, and it's a big one. And we're weak, but Satan is limited. Satan is only one being. Satan is not omnipotent. He does not have all power. Satan is not omniscient. He does not know your thought. This is why you should be slow to speak. Satan operates in our words, not in our thought. You know who's operating in your thought? You. Me. The wicked sinful thoughts in our mind are not being hinted at by Satan. They're not being helped as we look around. The evil wicked thoughts in our mind are because we are weak and we are vulnerable. They come from our own mind. And then we speak. We, we, oh, with our mouth, we bless God and curse men, James says. My brothers, it should not be so. It should not be so. Satan cannot create. He does not know our thoughts. He is not everywhere. He is not all-powerful. He was not, oh, this is big. This was big for me. Satan was not made in the image and likeness of God. That automatically gives the believer in Jesus Christ a step up on Satan. You bear the image of God, and Satan does not. He's a created being, and his end has been spelled out from the beginning. Know your enemy. No sooner did he deceive the woman in the garden. I will put enmity, and you'll strike at his heel, but he will crush your head. From all eternity past, the end of Satan has been spelled out, the doom of Satan. Revelation 12 talks about it. Revelation 14, 15, 16, 17, the serpent bound, thrown into the lake of fire, tormented, the Bible says, forever and ever. Paul in Ephesians chapter 2 refers to Satan as the prince of the power of of the air. I want you to think about that for a moment. A lot of times we might bring that thought to Satan is the prince of the power of nothing, the air. Right? Paul, the reason we would think that, Paul also says, I don't want to box as one beating the air and end up disqualified. The air is nothing. There's nothing there for me to box against. Think about this. Every single one of us in the room breathing air right now, aren't we? Prince of the power of the air but limited and under the authority of God. This world is wicked. This world is fallen. This world deserves and will get full and complete judgment by fire. 
by hailstones, the Bible says, falling a hundred pounds each and devouring the enemies of God. Pages of scripture are filled with overwhelming forces coming against the people of God. The pages of history are filled with overwhelming forces coming against God's people. We sit here and look up to our government thinking, what can someone do? Because there are forces of evil operating that we feel so powerless against. And just as we see Pharaoh having already suffered a major defeat, now pursuing the Israelites, vulnerable and weak, Satan having suffered a most major defeat at the cross of Calvary, in the empty tomb. Satan is not going to give up as he waits that final judgment. Revelation shows a relentless enemy, intensifying his attack on God and God's people, right to the very end until he is bound in chains and cast away forever. They are wandering. The enemy schemes. Vulnerable are the people of God. The enemy is strong. Weak are the people of God. The next time we open to the book of Exodus, we will begin considering how God's people are called to respond in the face of the enemy's attack. Verse 10 is going to start us off. The next time we open Exodus 14, the people of Israel lifted up their eyes and behold, there comes the enemy. And no sooner are they out of Egypt and they're already wanting to go back there. Didn't we say to you, we'll examine all of that later for today. The enemy, scheming and strong. Pharaoh pursuing Israel, vulnerable and weak. In what ways are you vulnerable to the schemes of the enemy? Oh, I'm not. Well, there's one. I'm okay. Two. In what ways are you vulnerable? What does that mean, Pastor? Vulnerable. It means capable of being wounded. You're in danger. Vulnerable and weak are not synonymous, you understand. One just means you're like an enemy force out in the open with no protection. The other means you don't have power to do or face what's coming at you. Those aren't the same things. Strong enemies have been exposed and out in the open. Strong enemies can be vulnerable. They're out here exposed and vulnerable. They're able to be defeated. They're not weak. And just as enemies can be strong and exposed, be vulnerable, we can be vulnerable as the people of God, open to being wounded. You may be strong. Are you vulnerable? You may not be vulnerable, but are you weak? In what ways are you vulnerable to the schemes of the enemy? Before we give too much credit to the enemy's schemes, let us not forget, James teaches us, James chapter 1, verse 14, that we are tempted when lured and enticed by our own evil desires. It's already in us. All of us infected by the problem of sin. Adam and Eve were told not to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Don't do it. Why would God have given them a command they couldn't follow? Because they could have until they didn't. And now none of us can. That's how it's gone down, do you understand? They could have. Now we can't. Well, pastor, it's easy to not sin, I bet. Adam and Eve were told not to eat from the fruit of the tree of knowledge of good and evil, but Genesis tells us, chapter 3, verse 6, that Eve saw the fruit as desirable. I want it. There's something out there I don't have, and I want that. She was vulnerable to the scheme of the enemy. She believed the lie of the enemy, and what happened? She disobeyed God. In this world, we are vulnerable to the scheme of the enemy. There are lies all around us. There are lies waiting for you to believe them. The enemy is scheming. How's your prayer life? How's your discipline in God's word? How's the fortifying work of Christians gathered around you helping to protect you from being vulnerable? How about this? In what areas are you weak? Weak, just utterly lacking strength. I think of a fortified city no one's getting in here, and that's a good thing because there's only like 10 of us, right? That's a weak enemy in a not-so-vulnerable position, but they're weak. Weak. Our enemy is strong. 
in the world. Our flesh is weakened by the fall. We need to do all we can to be built up. So what are you doing? How are you seeking to be built up and strengthened? I'm glad you're here this morning, one. I hope you'll engage in praying throughout the week, two. I hope you have fellowship with Christians and believers around you. And not just the how's the weather, how's life, how's work, but the how's, how's your life with Christ. Are you standing strong? Are you weak? Can I strengthen you? That's what we exist for. There's no greater priority among the people of God than the spiritual welfare of their neighbor. We worship and glorify God. It's about me. No, it's not. It's about you and everyone around you. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and mind and strength and love your neighbor as yourself. As we grow and are built up in the strength and grace and knowledge of God, we are to be building up and strengthening others around us in the knowledge and grace of God. Great hymn of our faith. I always loved this song as a kid, a little kid. Mighty fortress is our God. Luther wrote these words. And though this world with devils filled should threaten to undo us, we will not fear, for God has willed his truth to triumph through us. We are in need of praying. As Paul prayed for the Ephesians chapter 3, verse 16, that according to the riches of God's glory, he may grant us to be strengthened in our inner being. So Father, we come to you today in need of being strengthened, in need of protection. You have exposed to us through the teaching of your word ways as to how our enemy operates. Father, I pray that you would protect and strengthen a vulnerable and weak people against a strong enemy. God, we are thankful to know and understand that in the scope of eternity, Satan is defeated. But we must now live in this life exposed to his lies and his schemes. God, I pray that you would strengthen us. And I pray, Father, that you would help us to not see the enemy as flesh and blood. Your word tells us that is not our enemy. Father, help us to know our enemy. But, oh, Father, help us to know our Savior and our warrior God more. Our sin is great. We are so broken. We fail you. But you are so strong. God, would you grant to us, according to your riches, the glory of your riches, Father, I pray, would you grant to us that we may be strengthened in our inner being to withstand the schemes of the devil. There is none like you. Father, we praise you for the narrative of Exodus and learning about our enemy. And God, we look forward to joining again together soon to learn about our response in the face of an overwhelming foe and to see you get glory over the enemy and to see your power. Father, today we say thank you. We love you. In Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for joining us this week. If you have any questions about anything you just heard or if we can pray for you, please contact us at info at Until next time, stay in God's word.